Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Welcome back to uh, Reality Check Radio and Greenwashed with Jaspreet and Don. And uh, remember to give your feedback at text 2057 and inbox at realitycheck.radio. And today we've got an, another guest in the energy sector, I mean, or in the energy consultancy sector, uh, Larry Blair from Taranaki. Not quite sure. I think it's Inglewood, but um, regardless, it's good to have you on, uh, Larry, because you're, we're told, the man with the font of knowledge about New Zealand's energy security and uh, and systems. And uh, um, clearly... New Zealand is in a bit of a bit of a spot at the moment. We think we're seriously energy um, uh, rich, but there's a lot of players meddling. So I think we should talk about all that sort of stuff. And um, so anyway, Larry, give us a bit of an introduction on how you've got in, involved in this industry. And welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks, Don. Um, yeah, so I, I when I left school, I was uh, interested in physics and things and got into, uh, into instrumentation, uh, industrial measurement and control. Um, that was my, my trade and um, basically uh, worked my way through that and developed a career mostly in the oil and gas industry, but um, touched on a bit of marine stuff, some time in the shipyards overseas, um, drilling operations around the world, um, and then quite a lot of uh, work with production activities here in Taranaki at the moment. In terms of right. So yeah. did, did you specialize in, in any, uh, well, well, you've just said oil and gas. Have you had any other sector sort of background like electricity and stuff like that? Yeah, um, oh, a little bit with the dairy industry more than anything. Um, dairy farmer's son, obviously. So used to do, always had a pretty close connection to that, but, um, and, and did do some work with Fonterra at one point um, via Fulton Hogan for a water treatment plant. So, um, yeah. Um, not so much with the energy distribution or generation sector. Um, yeah. And, and, and so um, building into this industry, uh, you know, you, you're now working on your own consultancy firm, I gather, uh, but, but you've worked for some pretty big players in the past to build your, build your knowledge up. You, your, your formative Yeah, years. that's right. I mean, I, I, these days I'm just mostly supporting one of the local operators here. Um, in Taranaki, um, that's that's going well. Uh, yeah, I, I guess my my interest in the bigger energy equation for New Zealand is just one as a, a concerned citizen. You know, I've got um, I've got children in New Zealand, um, three of them, three young boys, and uh, obviously, I'd like them to have opportunities in the future. And um, and I, I think you know our ability to harness and, and utilize energy is is our key to. Um, Prosperity and, and opportunity, I guess, and and I, the picture I see in front of us is one that's uh, yeah, not not particularly um, exciting to be honest. Well, not not that it's not exciting; it's a little bit concerning that there's a, a lack of uh, aspiration, I think, in a, and a lack of um, energy security um, within a relatively short time frame. Yeah, that's that's the reason we have you on, Larry. Is uh, we had a, a a person tell us that um, you've got these um, observations and opinions, and yeah. we need to hear them. I mean, clearly, a lot of New Zealanders aren't hearing um, alternate opinions at the moment. It seems all pretty much one way track. This 
this low carbon, low emissions economy. And, you know, I've got no problem with uh, with uh, a most efficient sort of uh, energy um, mix we ha- we can have. But um, currently it's sort of pretty much one way traffic. And are you thinking that we're putting ourselves into a bit of a corner, like we're squeezing ourselves into a into a funnel that's going to be pretty hard to hold our economy together with um with less fossil fuel use, for instance? Yeah, well, I mean, there's a huge amount of nuance in the in energy, right? We use energy; it's a it's a very broad term, um, but it, it, there's so many different subcategories and. And different forms of energy are are better than others for different applications. Um, And and it's about using the right tool for the job. Um, Yeah, my, I guess, getting into the weeds pretty quickly, but um, my my big concern is that, uh, um, you know, we we have a, don't have a huge amount of gas reserves at the moment. And and none of the, the, Activities that we're proposing for the future, which is you know largely growth and wind, um, that doesn't work well without natural gas to support it. Um, if you if you look at the generation curve or, or graph over time for wind, it's very choppy. Um, it's like a sawtooth, you know. It's, it's peaks and troughs, and the frequency of those changes is high. Um, and you need some. You need something that can respond quickly to fill in the gaps, um, and that, that's where um, we're quite dependent on gas. But again, there's a, a lot of these categorization errors. You know, like gas is not just the energy source; it's also a raw material, and oil the same, and so is coal. Um, and we don't use coal in New Zealand as a raw material, but but definitely overseas, um, there's quite a lot of that. So when we when we talk about decarbonizing and, and decoupling from oil and, and gas um, we don't you know we, we don't have anything else that meets the criteria of both being an energy source and, a, and the raw material for just about everything that we come in touch with on a day-to-day basis so it's so what's the circuit breaker here I mean clearly this narrative is is one as I said earlier one-way traffic at the moment um it's just get rid of get rid of coal get rid of fossil fuels um don't worry about uh um you know get get rid of oil and gas exploration even don't don't have a suite full of options um narrow the options down uh what's the circuit breaker in all this going to be because clearly there is people who yeah. like you concerned. Well, I think like the, the the discussion is there um, around you know natural gas supporting industry and in, in, in New Zealand going forward through till 2050, right? But um, at the moment, I mean, and, and this is just public information you can look up on. You know, you, I think it's um, uh, Ministry of MB, uh, Ministry of Business Innovation Employment. They publish um, you know what what we've got in terms of reserves. So our 2P reserves, which is is a combination of um, confirmed um, reserves and predicted reserves, um, is about 1,900 petajoules at the moment for gas, right? Um, and there's a lot of uh, lot of units and the energy discussion, which makes it a bit confusing because some people are talking gigawatt hours and some people are talking petajoules and others are talking, you know, BTU and all sort of stuff, but. Um, but in general terms, um, we've got 1,900 petajoules of gas there, and we're using about 180 petajoules a year. Now, I mean, that, and that number was from 2021, I think, to that 1,900. So, um, so 
we've got the situation where we've got um, you know like a seven seven or so year window of gas, right? And then when you look across the industry sector and you, and you look where all that goes, you know, Kinleith Forestry, one of our big primary exports, they use a lot of gas. Um, Fonterra, gas brutes, um, <laughs> dairy industry, um, you know, that's 5.8 PJs of gas there. Mm. Um, just for Fonterra alone, that's a huge amount of energy. Um, and then you've got, uh, uh, you know, food manufacturing in, around the South Auckland area, Huntley Power Station, um, New Zealand Steel still uses a reasonable amount of gas, I believe. Um, yeah. All the industrial users are all contingent on on that um, that supply of thermal energy, basically. And when when we're talking, and I, I guess this is where my big concern is, is that you know when we talk about that window, um, you know, of say nineteen hundred PJs, seven years. Um, mm. What what can New Zealand build in seven years' time to replace that? You know, like can we electrify our industry in seven years? You know, I the the pipe the pipeline. Sorry, excuse the pun, but the 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 pipeline for infrastructure development in New Zealand these days is is, is so long. You know, there's so much red tape, and um and it, and it's very 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 difficult to um to do anything really um on an industrial scale. And yet we're talking about replacing um, gas, which makes up in, in raw energy terms, um, it'd be close to the entire energy production to date in New Zealand. What we do today, you know, just in terms of industrial gas. So um, no, that, I, that I guess, is my big concern: is, is where do we? How? What? What's the plan? Uh, <laughs> and I'm not seeing one. I, I'm seeing I'm seeing discussions about importing LNG from Australia and all this sort of stuff. But even that. Um, the infrastructure we'd need to do that even in this time frame i i i can't see that happening either i i am seeing plans here larry but they are like a word salad that make no sense this afternoon came an email from motor research a joint document by motor research and mb talking about just transitions now you are in taranaki don and i are in southland both these areas are specifically held up as you know the forefront the for the leaders in just transitions I was looking at the Taranaki 2050 energy plan. On one hand, they say, the plan says that gas will be crucial as transition to a low carbon uh, economy. And then it says stepped conversion from coal to gas to renewable energy results in a much higher cost structure than converting from coal to renewable directly. So what gives? I, I look at these documents and they keep seem to keep contradicting each other. We need natural gas, but it's going to be too expensive. As you say, I don't, I don't see a pathway for us being able to electrify all that fast. And yeah. seeing it's happening in Europe. Oh, well, I, th I think one of the one of the there's a lot of unique um, aspects in the New Zealand equation. One that we're we're an island, right? So. Mm. We don't have any pipelines connecting us to other countries. We can't import electricity. We're not like Germany, you know. We can't rely on France's nuclear system to keep us afloat. Um, we we we're highly dependent on what we produce here, um, and you know we, we don't we don't import anything in terms of energy other than oil, which I mean is forty eight percent of our energy. But that's another story. But um, so. 
what we've got in terms of infrastructure for the gas at the moment is a mixture of onshore and offshore facilities, right? And the operating cost of those facilities is high, um, just in terms of general, you know, logistics for offshore facilities is expensive, crewing is expensive, um, maintaining the infrastructure, the asset integrity is all expensive. Um, and onshore, it, it's not as bad, but, but it still has, you know, a reasonably high cost base. So, You've now got that um, that production value, that 186, 190 petajoules of gas each year distributed across a reasonably large consumer base, right? But one mm -hmm. consumer, um, Methanex, um, take nearly half of that, right, on average, I guess, plus or minus. Um, and if, if you take them out of the picture, you've got a longer time frame, but now you've got a much higher... Um, cost base to the consumers that are still using so you've got just as much infrastructure to maintain but you're you're putting out less product um so that obviously the cost to cover that operation is is higher um and i think that's possibly what they're talking about um mm. it's difficult to understand but um but yeah we need we need we need gas into the future just you know even the ammonia urea plant i mean you know, New Zealand's dairy production is pretty, pretty contingent on, um, you know, nitrogen-based fertiliser, which is um, coming from natural gas as well. And this is why I say when we talk about um, energy, we're only talking about half of the problem. You know, it's, it's the raw material aspect of it as well that's, that's so critical. So, I mean, from, personally, I mean... My big concern is just how, where, where's this gas coming from and, and what's the longer term picture? Um, you know, it is, it is if, if we want to go to more wind and, and more renewables, we definitely need more gas. You know, we need it. Uh, we need a load follower that, you know, a quick response time. And, and I, I guess that's why I was sort of interested in maybe having a more nuanced sort of set the scene discussion around, you know, just the energy um, culture and, and what categories they are and what they do and just understanding the basic fundamentals because I think the public dialogue is um, isn't nuanced enough to to ask the right to to the authority. So um, you know we, we just talk about energy in terms of joules or gigawatts or something, but how are you developing that? Um, what tool are you using? What's the What's the limitations of this tool? Uh, what other tools do you need to, to mitigate those limitations? And, and it's quite a complex picture. And then it gets into market dynam dynamics in New Zealand as well. Um, you know, are, are we going to get into a situation like Europe where, where we have to pay some generators not to generate so that we can take the wind generation that's um, <laughs> available at the time and then have them ready to go on standby when there's no wind, you know? Um, and that 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 could be multiple times in a day. Um, so it's yeah. it's it's a very nuanced sort of discussion. But and, and I, I I don't I don't even know if you know many people even appreciate how how much energy we actually use and and how integral it is to modern society. I mean, it's only 165 years since we've started refining oil, right? So the first oil was, I think, in, um, in the 1850s, late 1850s out of Romania, I think, was the first refinery. 
Mm-hmm. And and since then, in that 165-year period, we've just had this absolute explosion of economic activity, right? And there's a, a basically a 99% sort of correlation between GDP and, and use of oil, right, in, in nearly all countries across the world. So um, the, the, just uh, it's hard, you know, the, the units make it difficult for people to discuss it. So like I said before, so many different units of energy, which make it difficult to discuss. So I was sort of thinking, how do you how do you make it more um, easier for people to understand what what we're talking about in terms of energy, right? And and I thought, well, if you can convert it back to manual labour, um, then you can get it a, a conversion, right? So just a, a a real this is really coarse, but it's a good sort of representation. Is that you know a person working eight hours a day. Um, that's happy and fed and well motivated can produce about 75 watts an hour of power, right? Mm-hmm. So you're working in the field and you're producing 75 watts an hour, right? So that's 0.6 of a kilowatt over the day, right? Now one barrel of oil is 1,700 kilowatts, right? So that's you know if you if you give humans um, uh, some credit for mechanical advantage, so they've got wheelbarrows, shovels, levers, these sorts of things, they're better at applying energy. Uh, then you know we're still talking something like four years, four and a half years of manual labour in one barrel of oil, which is less than a hundred dollars, right? Wow. So US, right? So so. Then you consider that New Zealand, on average, if you look at 600 petajoules of energy, is what our what's actually it's actually 900. We lose 300 in conversion, but let's just use 600 as an example. 600 petajoules of energy is how much we use. If we convert that to barrels of oil, it's about 100 million of oil a year, which at 4.5 yeah years of labour per barrel of oil yeah that's how many years of manual labour we apply. Each year, yeah, four hundred yeah. million man, man years of labor. You know? It's 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 that that. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't those, see too. The scale of those numbers blows your mind, right? But like, you just have to think: if I push my car for eight hours, how far would I get, right? If I put my car in neutral and I try and push it down the road for eight hours, how far do I get versus how far do I drive it if I hop in it and actually just drive it normally? You know, that, that, that's sort of there's a lot of so, people. So, I mean, there's a lot of people. Just so uh, who, yeah. Yeah. Look, there's a lot of people who uh, perhaps uh, would want to work less in a day. So their energy output would be even less. Um, and that's the sad part of it all. The people that want to do less and less and less uh, sort of don't understand that there there is tools that can take up the slack, like like um, fossil fuels or electricity or something and make life better. But what we seem to be doing is putting all this fear of the future uh, around people and putting costs on top of it to make things look hellishly expensive and basically making people um, scared to invest. I mean, there's a lot of sunk cost in a lot of things we're talking about. And uh, what's your assessment about, um, perhaps let's change tack a little bit. To the to the investment profile of um, of those in the oil and gas sector now, they would have wanted to have ca- carried on um, 
you know, assessing the, the the fields where they might want to drill, do, do exploration and an assessment, and all that has that has that all gone now, or is well, it still in play? So, so we we kind of need to understand how the the block offers work. So basically, um, prior to to the the current administration um, in the last term, we had the situation where the government under the Crown Minerals Act, I think it was, was obligated to offer up blocks for exploration. And and different operators could take up those those permits, right? And that was both onshore and offshore. Um, and once you once you took up a permit, you're on a timeline, um, a clock starts essentially, and you are obligated to do exploration within a certain time frame. Um, and then if you um, complete that exploration and you've got something that you think is um, worth developing, then you had an obligation to do exploration drilling um, within a certain time frame and so on and so forth, right? And you you basically couldn't bank a block. You had to, if you didn't use it within that time frame for the various stages of, of exploration through the development, um, you had to relinquish it as well as all of the data acquisition that, that came with it, right? So. Um, if you'd done seismic, then you, you gave the permit back and the seismic is how I roughly understand it. Now, um, after the, um, Jacinda Ardern's trip to the G7 and, and the announcement of banning offshore exploration, essentially what they did is um, change that act so that they didn't have to do a block offer. So existing permits you could continue to, to operate in and you could continue to do exploration. And, and to be honest, there's been a lot of exploration in Taranaki and existing permits in the last 24 months, um, a lot. We've probably never drilled as much as we have in the last 24 months. That, um, but that's all sort of in-field development and, and reworking existing formations, that sort of thing, right? So um, what we don't have now is, is we don't have any sort of certainty around um, around the block offer and, and, and what you can and can't do with it. So. What, what's happened is that over historic governments left um, the the red red versus blue didn't really matter who was there. No one never touched the the Crown Minerals Act. So um, from a, a large oil company perspective, you looked at New Zealand and you went, okay, it's expensive because it's a long way away from all the main infrastructure. Um, it's technically difficult because of the geography, um, but there's very there's no political risk right um there's no sovereign risk it, it's it's a good place to do business um no one changes the rules on you you can invest over a long period and, and know you know where you're at and what's going on right we don't have that third anymore. piece of the puzzle anymore so now we've got you know it's expensive it's technically difficult and now it's got sovereign risk you you can't even if the next government came in and said hey we're we're really pro oil and gas and and we want to promote as much exploration as we can. Um, the problem is that how do you know that that goes beyond three-year term, right? Will you still have that support um, or will the goalpost shift in the subsequent term if, if you know, that, that government... And, and we know from New Zealand political history that no government lasts more than roughly nine years, right? So six to nine years is probably a pretty good run for most of them, right? So... Um, Whereas the investment cycles for these sorts of developments are, are probably 20 to 30 years, you know, like even just to bring 
um, a new field to market um, would would be a, a long process now. You know, especially if it's not in the vicinity of any existing infrastructure. Existing ones. Yeah. So, so Larry, just to back up a wee bit, New Zealand's uh, these rules changed. What about 2018? I think, and um, you know, we've we've talked. They've been in the media and talked about. What other countries in the world? For instance, has Australia got anything like this? Has um, South America got any of these sort of um, bans being you know, put in front of them, or is it just New Zealand? I I don't really know, Don. Um, like I, it's a bit difficult, but I, I it was interesting. I was at a um, Energy and Natural Resources Summit in Singapore recently, and um, it was interesting that the Indonesian government was was there and they were very bullish on oil and gas. They were promoting it. Uh, they were inviting operators uh, into Indonesia. They wanted to um, have, have more um, sort of development there. And and it was also interesting that the other the 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 conversation around um, Asia and, and Europe on the back of the issues in Ukraine has, has shifted a lot from, you know, emissions and, and CO2 um, to more around energy security. So, um, you, and you're seeing some really interesting developments. I think it was at, uh, I think it was Finland, if I remember rightly. It was one of the Scandinavian countries recently is, is wants to um, include nuclear in their renewable sort of category mm-hmm. um, of energy, you know, so... So there's a, there's a lot happening in that space in terms of people. It's been a big wake up call, you know, with the for particularly look, you know, everyone that's looking at Germany and going, wow, you know, look look what happened there. You know, they've they've basically they had the and I'm going to pronounce this wrong because I'm not German, but it's the Ingenfeld or something like that, which was this uh, push to have more renewable, and I think they got up to something like twenty percent, twenty eight percent of their. Um, their domestic electricity mix was was renewable, um, and on the back of that, they'd phased out um, with a you know moving to phase out nuclear, and then obviously you've lost uh, a huge amount of energy coming through that Nord Stream pipeline, plus the phase out of the nuclear, and then the wind obviously is a intermittent source, so it's difficult. Um, and now they're importing a huge amount of um, energy from France, you know, through which is nuclear generated out of France. Yeah, and and you only have to look at their per capita or per GDP or whatever metric you want to use it emissions, and and France is is doing much much better. Um, so so it, it's it's interesting, right? Yeah, so they've sort of snookered themselves. Has have have has New Zealand snookered itself? Because uh, just talk, you know, what we've covered so far, we haven't covered the closing of Marsden Point or the mothballing of Marsden Point. And what risk that may have put into the New Zealand security of supply of of, um, of fuels? Are we at a risk of snookering ourselves? Do you think, and having energy shortages? Um, that's a that's a difficult question. I, I'm I'm not quite convinced that Marsden Point creates any energy security risk. Um, it creates um, certain product security issues, but. Um, you know, like before, while Marsden Point was operating, it was importing crude oil, right? So we were still subject to the nuances of shipping, the global oil commodity markets, um, you know, securing supply of crude oil, that sort of thing, right? But mm. now 
we're doing that same process, but we're doing it across every um, every distillate product, right? So now we are, you know, and, and we we always we did import these distillates as well. We, at Marsden Point only ever um, produced a percentage of our consumption; it wasn't all of it. Um, yeah. But um, we've lost a lot of we've lost lost a lot of flexibility as a result of that. I think you know you're seeing um, issues in the airlines at the moment with um, conductivity in the in the aviation fuel, and that that's I'm not 100 percent sure what's causing that conductivity issue, but um, it's it's likely moisture, um, water, or something like that probably. So um, running those sorts of products through back through the a system again and, and cleaning them up was an option we would have had previously that we don't have now, right? So. So you're talking the products, for instance, the jet fuel that goes, I think, from from yeah. Marsden Point down to Auckland Airport and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Gosh, that sounds serious. Um, but yeah, how 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 do they how do they clean that up then if it's uh, if it's got um, contamination on it? I'm I'm not sure how they're doing. That's a that'd be a, interesting to talk to someone that actually has some insights around that because yeah, it is interesting. I know. Um, it, it was creating a lot of issues for New Zealand because they were actually had to carry additional fuel to, you know, they would normally fuel at certain locations, but they couldn't, um, they didn't have supply in those locations due to this this conductivity issue. So they were actually carrying extra fuel so that they could fly, say, to Auckland or Wellington and back again. Or I think it was more the regional airports was the problem. But yeah, they were basically instead of taking fuel at those points, they were, and and then obviously that creates, you know, it takes a lot more energy to fly that plane, right? Because it's heavier. So, yeah. so yeah. just as an aside, um, do you know how much uh, revenues are earned by royalties out of uh, the energy sources that uh, the Crown has uh, access to the royalties from? Is is it a big big paycheck for the for the Crown? Um, not off the top of my head, I can't tell you what the number is. Uh, I'd, I'd be able to, you know, it'll be <laughs> there in, in in the the government's financial but, reports, but it, it's it would be significant. Yeah. Yeah. So my point being, um, you know, the government's made these rules about um, reducing exploration and and uptake of uh, fossil fuels, um, but yeah. on the other it, side of it, there's a, a big, significant big, loss of a tax revenue stream. Definitely. Yeah. Exactly. And so, where does that uh, new new revenue come from? It's going to come from the mums and dads and the businesses of New Zealand, uh, regardless. In another way. Um, for, yeah, for, yeah, I imagine taxes and GST and the like. So, yeah, for sure, uh, yeah. So, just we haven't talked about. Uh, I know off off here we talked um, about the battery project. Um, uh, I, I assume you're talking about Lake Onslow, that sort of um, yeah, yeah. hydro uh, pumped hydro um, concept. What's your thoughts on that? To give us supposedly uh, energy security because uh, a lake is a big battery, really. Yeah, well, I mean, they, they call it a battery battery project for a reason, right? So what, what they're trying to do, it, it recognises that the more renewables you put on the grid, the more storage you need, okay? To, and the storage is required to deal with the intermittency, right? So, um, you know, if, you, if you're going to have a lot of solar, you've only got a, a certain generation window. Um, if you're going to have wind, like I've said before, even... Even when it's reasonably distributed, it's still, you know, across geographically distributed, it's still quite, um, it, it, it's very fluctuate. It fluctuates a lot in, in nature. So, I mean, it's it's quite interesting to actually have a look at at the output graph of a, of New Zealand wind farms and 
and you'll see how how many peaks and troughs there is even within the course of a day. It, it's you know multiple, um, you know, up up to hourly in some cases. So um, that you you need to be able to buffer that somehow, and I think that's where the New Zealand Battery Project comes in. So they get, they're expecting to have an over oversupply um, of power at certain points, and at, during that time, what they want to do is they want to pump from a low-level lake up to a high-level lake, and then um, when when you've got a glut, uh, sorry, a, a deficit, then you'll you'll take that water back down through a turbine, generate power, and put it back into the grid. That that's the idea. It's a big kinetic battery, is essentially what it is. But um, uh, I, I don't know. Uh, probably uh, uh, our listeners aren't probably familiar with the thermodynamics, which which sounds complicated, but it's quite simple. And and you probably most people learnt about thermodynamics when they're in third form physics or something. But it's basically you know the the concept that in it, in, every time you change energy, there's um, Losses and it's not really lost, you know. Energy is never lost; it's just transformed. But transformed. it's how many things do you transform it into that aren't useful to you? So, um, and then become then following on from that is the idea of entropy, right? So entropy is that these losses, for, they're not lost, but you know, in terms of actual motive force that we're looking for, they're losses. Um, they become more chaotic over time. So they become bigger and they become more broad. There's more of them. The, the number of different transformations is ever increasing, right? So when you talk about um, extracting energy from a moving fluid, which is a wind turbine, and then you're converting that into um, you know, a motive force, which is spinning an alternator, which takes it to energy, electricity, then you're putting that electricity into a grid and then you've got transmission losses. Uh, you've got a DC-AC conversion if you're taking it from the North Island to the South Island. Then you're pumping water uphill. You've got fluid losses. You've got mechanical losses in the pump. You get it into a lake. You've got evaporation losses to the atmosphere, um, you know, just the water evaporating. Then you're running it downhill. Um, you've got more fluid losses through the tunnel friction losses um, then you've got mechanical losses in the turbine generating the electricity and then you're transmitting it back into the grid right so um, yeah how much of the actual energy that you started with do you actually store and how much can you deliver to the grid at the end of the day you know it, it's and and each time you're doing that you've, you've got to build extra infrastructure to compensate for the the amount that you're losing right and then You've got to maintain that and operate it and the capex and the return on investment it becomes a really expensive way to do things um you know whereas uh and that that's that's why we you know it's, it's so important to have these discussions so that people can understand some of the nuance around these energy concepts right like you know if you've got gas coming out of the ground and it's literally got a choke valve right that's all it is it's just a a valve that regulates how much gas you want. And you can literally turn it on or turn it off depending on what you need. And hydro hydro can load follow quite well as well, you know, so hydro dam. But, um, you know, so you need all of these things in the mix to compensate for each other. And, you know, the, the more energy dense something is and with a lower amount of entropy, the better quality it is, I guess, as a, as a general concept. Um, yeah. And the costs associated, they're talking of 15.7 billion. So when I listen to you talking about all the losses that are going to happen. Yeah. And there, you know, there is so much yeah, uh, up in the air. 
Yeah, and that's only the that's only the um, the the Lake Onslow um, lower lake tunnel generation piece of it. That doesn't include the infrastructure, that, you know, the wind infrastructure and things like that that are going to um, input to this. You know, like there, you know, there's a there's talk of a 900 megawatts, I think it is, um, wind farm off of offshore wind farm off mm -hmm. the coast of Taranaki here, of South Taranaki. Um, Again, like I mean, what's what's the cost of that? I I, I don't know. I haven't. I, I'm not privy to any figures or anything. But I, I can only extrapolate from you know, like North North. Um, sorry, EU European Union. The average cost of offshore winds about 3.5 million euros per megawatt. So you know, you add that times that by 900, um, and then Ouch. you're up to sort of eight billion dollars worth of investment there. But that that's assuming. I mean, that's an established market with established infrastructure and and everything. So you got you'd have to add at least 50 percent to that for the New Zealand context, just because we don't we don't have an offshore wind industry here. So we'd have to develop that as well. You know, so um, what's the cost of that? You know, and but nine again, what is 900 megawatts, you know, in terms of, of energy. Human labour, um, yep. Yeah, so it's not a huge amount when you when you start looking at the total. Um, exactly. You know, what, uh, I think one petajoule, um, sorry, uh, sorry, one gigawatt hour is only about um, 0 0.03 petajoules or something. So um, that's not... You know, when you're when you're converting electricity back to to actual total energy, it, you know, 900 megawatts sounds like a lot, but it doesn't. You know, it's a lot in terms of electrical the electrical context, but it's not a huge amount in terms of the actual total energy context for the. And, the and this is what they call the term, the goal to term, just transition. This is what they call justice, reducing social inequities, transitioning us, uh, transitioning us all to. <laughs> Power yeah. that we can't yeah. afford. I mean, listening to the figures, I'm wincing. Yeah, but this, this is this is an interesting thing, right? So, when we talk about energy and and the different forms, it's not apples for apples, right? So, you can't necessarily substitute, you know, oil, let's mm. say, or coal or gas or any, with electricity. Um, the different things, and they do different jobs and they have different functions um you know like oil in itself is a it's an amazing thing you know you can you can put a barrel of oil into a refinery and all these different products come off you know right from the the light um, butane type gases that flash off initially right down to bitumen at the at the other end and everything in the middle right so you know kerosene gasoline diesel um you know, heavy um, bunker, crude, all this sort of stuff. This all comes off and, and you've got all these products, right? And, and diesel, for example, you know, it's, it's so energy dense. Um, it's stable at atmospheric pressure and temperature. You can put it in a Coke bottle, if you like, and take it up into the bush and put it in your um, tractor and, you know what I mean? It's just the, the, the flexibility of that product and, and the, um, just ease of use is, is phenomenal you know and then the diesel engine itself is a is an amazing invention you know it's, it's well i, I can't low just RPM, high torque engine that powers society i can't help but throw in a barb right there because seeing all that uh, talk that's coming of 15 minute cities and high density apartments possibly we are not expected to go to these places where we need you know portable sources of fuel yeah, but, with us we can just <laughs> stay in those whatever uh, chicken coops that are meant but, for us it's amazing, right? Because like you, um, 
you know, your transition, right? Like you, you can't do it without the products that you're allegedly transitioning away from. Like you know, the mining alone for copper, let's say, you know, the, this, the yield rate of copper is quite low these days, you know, like all the, the really rich deposits are, are gone, you know, and I, I don't know what the numbers are, but, you know, you're moving a huge amount of ore and then you're crushing a huge amount of rock to get, you know, copper. And and that's a massively energy-intensive process, right? And, and nearly all of it's diesel-powered, you know, like mining trucks and, and diggers and, um, you know, big loaders. And then you've got uh, usually gas or, you know, power, start, power plants running crusher units, you know, probably 30 megawatts, something like that, to... To break down rock and and to micron size dust that you migrate the copper out of, you know, it's um well we are and, we, and, and moving really dense chemicals like hydrochloric acid and things, you know, it's all diesel. Yeah, life. Uh, there's not many people that if you don't have to think about it, you don't think about it. But life would be really miserable. Uh, without all the things that you've just talked about, um, because it's all around us every moment of every day. The use of these products um, uh, from a fossil fuel base, perhaps, is all around us. And so this yeah. term, just transition, is um, has got me exercised because um, I know that, uh, and, and I noticed looking at the Taranaki Just Transitions document, the last one is adaptive or ad- adaptation. Uh, well, actually... Uh, the open market would have adapted to things quite well, quite good without a lot of consultants' reports, um, in my opinion. And so you do have to wonder why we needed a new way of doing things when, in fact, we're still going to have to have a fair chunk of the old and we're going to adapt and and just let things evolve. Why is it that yeah. there's been this um, political push globally to destabilise and then do this reset that they will talk about. I mean, because I don't see any gain in any of this stuff except for confusion and um, basically the meddlers are getting their way for a moment. Yeah, uh, I, I don't know. I, mean, I can't really comment too much on the geopolitical, um, <laughs> political sort of motivations here. I, I mean, obviously there's a narrative around um, emissions, Um that, that's that's driving a lot of this, um, and and the transition ideas and in a nutshell is to move away from carbon intensive fuels to so-called renewables, right? But um, but it's not realistic in in a lot of ways, and and in the way I, you know it's it's not realistic even from um, just looking at raw materials for you know. You, you just can't substitute oil, you know, when you want to look at the polymers and, the, you know, just all of the spin-offs that come out of that, you know, plastics and um, nylons and all these synthetic materials that are all derivatives of oil, you know, like it, we need it as a, as a raw material, um, even at a minimum, right? Even if you could just switch off the energy side of it and just use it as raw material, you still need a lot of it, right? Um so, so again, I, like people talk to me about the just transition and I'm like, tr- but transition to what? Like we haven't really even defined what we're transitioning to, you know. It's like we've reached a fork in the road and there's multiple different ways we can go, but none of them's really going to the, a, a certain destination. It's, it's, it's quite a, 
Yeah. And, yeah. and what are the underlying assumptions? Are the underlying assumptions are that, that we'll continue to have more energy um, or is it that we just maintain what we've got now or is it that we have to sort of a, decrease a, our output, a quality of life? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and, I mean, I, 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 I'll, put, I'll put a proposition to you to just to consider, right? Um, mm. You know, and this is something I, I, there's a, a guy called Nate Hagens. I, I sometimes read his stuff and, and he came up with this idea and it is, so it's not mine, but, um, but it, it's interesting. And that is, um, what is money, right? What is money? This is a question. And, and, and then you have to say, well, money is a claim on energy. And mm-hmm. if you if you look at any you look at anything that you buy today, right? Um, the major component of it is energy, but the energy's been so abundant and so just so much of it were since you know, like I say, for the last 165 years that we we just take for granted the embedded energy in something, right? Like most things are actually free. Like if you put a seed in the ground and it grows, that's a biological process of the, you know, nature, photosynthesis, harvesting sunlight. That's it. So where does the value in that that plant, like that, that grain, come from, right? It comes from um, putting more energy into it, right? It means you're putting some nitrogen-based fertilizers in there so it grows faster, and then you're harvesting it with a tractor, so your productivity's up, and then you're transporting it to market, and you're adding value to it by turning it into bread or, you know, like it's actual, it's actually energy. That's the, the main component every step. Yep. about everything. Right. So your money is a, is a claim on energy, right. And debt is a claim on future energy. Right. So will we have enough energy in the future to service the debt that we've got now? That is a, you know, that's a more fundamental economic question. I think I'm right in these numbers, but I, you know, since 2017, I think the crown debt was something like five billion. Now it's 95 billion, mm. just in the in that period. Like, what what economic activity do we need to have to serve not only service that debt, but like diminish that debt? And then how much energy does it take to have that economic activity, right? Like, you know, what? I don't know how we will substitute diesel, you know, in all our tractors, for example. You know, if, if agriculture is our biggest primary export earner, it's how do we get around the nitrogen fertiliser problem and how do we get around the diesel problem if we're going to decarbonise? It's interesting. Away, you know, it's... It, it, you posit great you posit great questions. And in fact, in previous interviews, Jasper, haven't we sort of talked in a different way the same question? Yeah. Um, it is about energy use, it is about energy, it is about um the use output. of output. What yeah. do we do? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean it's but, productivity, right? Like you, and, and that's what energy gives us. It gives us productivity, you know. It's taken us from 0.6 of a kilowatt for our one day's efforts to <laughs> we've got four years of productivity and from our one day's effort now, right? So, yeah, but but you know, mainstream society, no disrespect, um, they have been almost encouraged to be distant from these sorts of discussions. The disconnection, uh, from these really hard connect uh, conversations, uh, 
are obvious to me. I mean, I didn't hear, hear any of this sort of stuff when I was going through school, and that's 50 years ago. So, um, and you know, you know what, what I, they hear what, the discourse now, if we are really at very trivial stuff rather than pondering stuff like this, yeah, yeah. we'll need to. Like to see it, and, you know, when, we, when we started this, the, the discussion levels are they're, they're too high, right? Like, you know, it's too abstract for. We can't we can't have a meaningful discussion about energy when we're going to abstract it into you know just topics about you know just transitions which don't have any real definition around them or or even what are the assumptions that underline that or you know what is that I mean it's a it's a slogan right but what is the slogan what does it actually mean um, you know and and how are we going to implement this and what's the plan and what do we need to do to get there and What's the opportunity cost that comes with that? And you know, we have not, there's we are more not questions than answers. So I guess what I'm saying, yeah. We, I don't even like the name. You know, just transition. Is it? Is it the word just? Does it refers to justice or it's just transition? You know, we don't <laughs> care how you do it. Just transition. And on on that note, you know, we have uh, the New Zealand's Future Energy Centre, which is now named as is want in Maori, Ara Ake, right? And I googled the meaning of Ara'ake. It says, wake up. Well, <laughs> do we need a wake-up call or what, gentlemen? That is very aptly named. Yeah, I, I think, you know, we've definitely got vulnerabilities emerging, definite vulnerabilities. The, the gas is one. Um, the import importation of various different product streams that we don't produce here now is another one. There's a There's a huge amount of, a vulnerability there in in terms of um, energy security. Yeah. So just before we we wrap, um, question I'd like to ask you is about uh, the hydrogen electrolyzing in this country and the viability of it, uh, and the and actually the energy output for the energy input. Um, like if you've got an electrolyzer, uh, electricity, big amount of juice going in. What's what's the sort of conversion factor for hydrogen? So it's interesting, right? So this is another, this is one of these categorization errors. So for a start, um, people think that hydrogen's an energy source. Right? It's not. It's an energy transport medium, right? It's something you embed energy in and then you transport it, right? It, now, it has um, the quality that you can burn it, right? So, so it's seen as a substitute for natural gas. But the, one of the, the big problems... For hydrogen, well, there's a there's a couple of problems here for a start, right? The first thing is there's two ways to make hydrogen at the moment, right? One's the electrolysis, like you mentioned, um, and the other one's for form natural gas, right? Now, the problem there is that both of those things, electricity and natural gas, we have existing markets for, we have existing distribution networks, and and we can put them to work, right? So. Um, using them to create hydrogen, which doesn't have a distribution network, doesn't really have a market yet, um, mm, and mm. has it's a niche product for um, chemical, you know, and, and manufacturing processes essentially at the moment, right? So, um, so why would you convert into something when you could just put it down the cable with electricity, right? That's the first question. And then there's, we come back to that, the, you know, we were talking about um, thermodynamics, right? So it's not thermodynamically efficient to produce hydrogen. Um, you know, I think at best, I think you get about 
60%. Um, so if you, let's say, put in, you know, um, one megawatt of electricity into electrolysis, you'll essentially get 600 watts of hydrogen, right? Um, so then you've got that at atmospheric pressure, so then you've got to compress it, which is further, you know, energy taken. You know, so what, what have you actually got to, to deliver at the end and then the actual calorific value of it um, is... There's no value you know, proposition. Energy density, yeah. So it's it's another one of these losses, losses, losses type scenarios, um, which makes yeah. it expensive. So at you know at this at this recent energy summit, there was some quite a lot of analysis on on hydrogen, and 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 they were talking about eighty to ninety dollars per million BTU, um, which is when you convert that back to a barrel of oil in terms of energy, it, it's like a four or five hundred dollar barrel of oil. Um, so so it's expensive, right? So um, how much are you prepared to pay for um, for low emissions? Um, and, and again, how how much embedded oils in that whole process? You know, if you're going to build it from a wind turbine, how much actual embedded coal and oil? You know, there's a lot of concrete, a lot of steel, a lot of carbon polycarbonate, a lot of carbon fiber in a, in a wind turbine, um, a lot of copper. You know, these are all there's a, there's a huge amount of embedded hydrocarbon and um, or Based energy in in those that infrastructure to start with, so um, and they've all got a, a lifespan as well. You know, that's that's the other thing. You know, they're not infinite. Once you've built them once, they just last forever. It's they've they've got a, a service life. Yeah. Uh, one more thing, I have we've previously spoken to a commentator from the US where they have been speaking up and you know trying to push back against those carbon capture pipelines that are go- going through vast swaths of America. I see Venture yeah. Taranaki is trying to investigate carbon capture mechanisms in New Zealand. Yeah, so the CCS is the um, there's there's lots of different ways of doing it. Like so, I mean, for a let's just say hypothetically, a um, if you were a, um, a gas producer and you had a, a reservoir that's depleted, you could potentially mm. um, you know you you could bring on a a gas stream that has a high CO2 content and then you can separate the CO2 out of the gas stream and you can put it back into the well and you can send the um, the gas to market with, with a lower CO2 content. So that, that's sort of one aspect of it. Then then there's these, the, I've, I've seen um, some of these sort of, you're going to extract it from the atmosphere and, and then put it into the, into a, it's all, they're all based on putting it back into a, into a, into a reservoir, but um how much energy does it take to do that is the question. And where does that energy come from? Um, and what's the cost of doing that? that yeah. These are the questions, right? Like, like, how much are you prepared to pay for energy? Well, That's the, and on top of that. And coming back to that whole, the more we pay for energy, the more we either have inflation or we have a drop in productivity. And it all comes back to that whole question of how do you service that future um, claim on energy, which is essentially what debt is, right? Yeah, mm. so, but a good angle. And of course, yeah. Um, you know, those of us that have followed it um, know that the world is a greener place with more CO2. Uh, it's not something to fear. Uh, and in fact, uh, you know, we were in a CO2 drought not many years ago. So the world is actually greening. If, uh, by all all uh, studies now, it's greening. So 
this carbon capture and storage or taking CO2 out of the atmosphere, it's just, it's just seems so nonsensical to me. Especially but, when we still haven't been able to eradicate hunger or, you know, have sanitation to all the, most of the parts of the world, the third world countries. This is what we are focusing on and we call it a just transition. Amazing. Yeah, well, I mean, it's 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 frustrating in in some ways because always a lot of these things are never, you know, I mean, like the ETS. Let's say you're an oil and gas company and you've got a, a gas reservoir and you want to the ETS incentivizes you to um, reduce the amount of CO two in your gas. So CCS could actually be a a quite a good opportunity there to actually, you know, through an emissions trading scheme mechanism, right? So it would incentivize. There's a commercial incentive to use your own capex um, and your own money to um, reduce your tax burden by sequestering, or not sequestering, but um, capturing and storing your CO2, right? But when you start talking about extracting CO2 from the atmosphere, there's no commercial mechanism there. I mean, who's going to pay you for that, right? So what happens is these things are um, they're all, they're almost always public funded, right? So it's a lobby group gets in front of the government and they say, hey, we've got this great idea. Can we have $100 million for a front-end engineering feed study, feasibility? Um, and they'll, they'll you know, start a, start a business and pay themselves director fees and, and all this sort of stuff and work on this feed and, and then two years later there's nothing to really show for it, right? Because it doesn't have a, you know, it's difficult to, to create a commercial basis for that to exist on. Um, that's self-sufficient. So it relies on public money, um, which is which is which is not ideal for the taxpayer, right? Mm. Yeah. And so it's sort of what we observe. Yeah, look, um, we've covered a lot of bases tonight, uh, and um, there's lots more. And sorry, we're so, well, I'm so basic about this, Larry, compared to your knowledge, uh, but we hope we've got it to a, a level that um, our listeners are able to understand. Um, but we do have a problem, uh, I think, being assured as Kiwis that we do have an energy secure future and at the right cost, not some ridiculously overinflated cost. And, um, you know, maybe that's paraphrasing too too much what you've said, but I think that was the sort of tone of, of the discussion. Would that be right? Yeah. So, I mean, how, how would you sum it up? Yeah, I think definitely definitely we need a mixture of sources, right? And I, I don't think that probably the, the key issue in, in ahead that I see is, is where is the um, – where's the natural gas coming from in the future um, to – to buffer these other, you know, things. And that, that's just, that's not just an electrical problem. That's a, a wider um, mm. thermal energy, thermal sources problem, right? So, um, and then what would be the imp economic impact if we had to import that in, in the form of LNG? And what's the pipeline to actually, you know, what's the timeline to be able to develop the infrastructure to do that? Yeah. Mm. Um, I just think that we're, we're, running headlong into a situation where we, we don't have sufficient reserves to maintain the current productivity levels or production levels um, that we have in this country. And, and we're also running out of time to put something else in place quite rapidly. Well, that's the warning. That's the warning from Larry Blair and uh, listeners. Uh, let's, let's see what develops. We'd love to have your feedback. 
Um, so uh, give us that on inbox at realitycheck.radio or on 2057 via text. And Larry, thanks very much for giving your time uh, freely. And uh, we may have you back because I think this is going to be an evolving story. Thanks very much. Okay. Thanks, Don. Thanks, Jasper. Thanks, Larry. Nice talking to you. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio.